November the 26th, 2017, lecture discussion number three on the book of Joel. And, well, I, I must say the book of Joel had a tottering beginning, uh, wobbly, weeblish, I guess would be correct, but at least we're moving. And last Sunday, I was not able to coherently diagram the second half of the first half of the tribulation, or if you prefer, the second quarter of the first half of the tribulation. I kept of interspersing it with the entirety of the seven-year graph. Let me try this again. The second quarter. I'm just going to put the second quarter. So here comes the first quarter. Here is the second quarter of the first half. Does that make sense? Here's the second half. We're getting bigger, Mike, diagrams. This is the first half. Whoops, I shouldn't do it that way. Check out one half. Pen came apart in my mouth. Oh no, it's lost forever now. It's on the ground. Three and a half years. 1260 days, that's the same thing. This is the midpoint. Midpoint's important. Many fascinating things happen in the midpoint. Intermission, if you wish to think of it that way, the interim. So, that's how it all works. Back here, of course, at the end of this is the 75-day interval. At the beginning of the first quarter is the taking of the bride, not on the board. So I mixed that up last week. That's a little faster and a lot better. Now, as you know, the second quarter contains the seven trumpets. So here's where the seven trumpets are. The seventh trumpet is right here. The seventh trumpet has seven bowls. And all of that occurs in the second half of the tribulation. That's where the seven bowls are. So the releasing and the second or the seventh trumpet is also the third woe. So hopefully that's beginning to seep in a little bit. The releasing of the bowl judgment, the pouring out of the bowls, the third woe is in the entirety of the second half of the tribulation. Though I will again divide the second half into quarters. So we'll end up with four quarters, just like we have the first half divided into two quarters. And um, I'll create those four quarters, all while I have to concede that the partitioning into four quarters isn't uniform. It isn't accurate. It'll be non-uniform. In other words, they're not precisely equal in, in length. The four quarters not all conform to the exact lengths. They're not four identical time periods. But I'm going to portray them as somewhat congruent in my expertly drawn visual aid. It'll look that way to you, but be aware they could be slightly misrepresented. The two halves, though, are absolutely correspondent. They match perfectly. They're 1,260 days or three and a half years based on a 360-day year. And they are absolutely perfectly matching. 
All of that except for the 75-day interval, which is Daniel 12, 11 through 12. Let's put that over here. That is the blessing of the 1,335th day. Now, how do I get 1,335 days from 1,260 days? Obviously, I add 30 and 45 to it. So I have a 30-day addition and a 45-day addition. 30 plus 45. And if that, what's occurring in that 75-day interval is the judgment of the Gentile nation, the separating of the goats and the sheep, which is also Joel 3. Yay, Joel 3, where we're headed. And Matthew 25, 31 through 46. (sighs) Obviously, it will be necessary to work our way through this third woe. This entire thing is the third woe. The third woe is extremely complicated. The first and the second woe are incredibly difficult to just work our way through, and we're going to hit that pretty hard today, at at least I hope so. But the, the third one is a tremendous amount of effort. So we're going to work our way through the third woe, the seven bowls, in order to understand the blessing of the 1335th day. So what I'm trying to say to you is this blessing and the fact that I'm dealing with all this third woe are absolutely lined up together in the sense that they are in an order. They are a cause and effect. You hear me say cause and effect a lot. If you want to know why there's a blessing of the 1335th day, why do we have goats and sheep? It has something to do with the progression of the three of the third woe of the seven bowls. So they're all together. They all cause, um, they all have an effect, and they all cause something that is in the future to them, and that demonstrates ahead of them with regard to the timeline. And all of it demonstrates, as is always the case, that Jesus Christ saves all who are going to believe in his name. That's what he's doing. All that cry out to him will be saved. Salvation is given during the seven years of the tribulation. And I have, I have said and I have asserted previously that the dispensing of salvation is the primary purpose of the tribulation. And I know that's not a usual Rendering of Revelation. Three functions or three purposes, three intentions of the tribulation. One is to turn and save the Jewish nation. That is what Christ is doing. He calls them the stiff-necked people. Why does he call them the stiff-necked people? What are they stiff-necked about? They are stiff-necked about him. That's right. Specifically what? They're stiff-necked about who he is. They do not believe that he is the I am of the burning bush, the creator of all things. They do not believe that. He is going to convince them of it. And one of the ways he does it is the tribulation. Another thing that he does with the tribulation is he saves the sheep, the Gentiles. And the third thing that he does, just keep those two in mind, Christ is unceasingly saving and he will not stop saving. And you have to understand that when he's issuing these tribulational events, these tribulational trumpets and bowls and seals and woes, that even a rhyme, there might be a song in there. Uh, When he's doing that, 
He is saving people with it, but he also is going to end uh, the wicked ones. He's going to end sin. One way he you end sin, I thought it. <laughs> and now, now I'm punishing myself for my thoughts. <laughs> Oh, my. Ah, now I have to find myself again as a highly trained professional. One of the ways you save people, or I'm sorry, one of the ways you end sin, obviously, is you save them, right? That's what he does. He has. There's two ways to end sin. There's the salvation way, and then there's the condemnation way. And the choice becomes uh, up to each individual. <sighs> I cannot punctuate, accentuate enough the role of salvation in the tribulation. It is generally disregarded and set aside by most who teach the book of Revelation. And I am trying to emphasize, suggest strongly that to do that is a grievous error. One that eliminates the purposes of the events. The connectivity, the order of it all. If I don't understand that these trumpets are, are affecting salvation, then they don't seem, they won't make very much sense to me. They'll just seem to be one after another judgment things that have no value. But they are, they are ordered and put in place specifically to save people. They're going to save and they're going to, and they're going to judge. They have a, uh, they have a two, a dualistic aspect to them. And I think, again, that if you eliminate salvation from it, then you lose that uh, cause and effect. Now, because of a continued concern that's been brought to me, and every year this comes, and I'm used to it because this is the Christmas season, Christ Mass and I get these kinds of things all the time, and I'm going to divert a, a bit today into it because it does fit with Revelation and Joel. And I'm going to present uh, the atheist offerings, the ever-present offer, atheist offerings that accompany the Christmas season. So every time we enter into the Christmas season, up comes these things. And actually, they're there all year long, but I guess maybe they're noticed by the church or noticed by Christians more so this time of year. One thing you need to know is that the monists are relentless. They're driven. I will give them that. They are active, very active this time of year because they don't know that is not necessary. They think this is an important time of year. They're wrong about that, but they don't know they're wrong. But you see them rise up. It's almost, there's an irony to it. Scholarship to the monists is not a concern. They're not interested in whether or not they present anything that is valuable or accurate or factual or even scholarly. They will utilize any available technique to advance their agenda, irrespective of the facts of that agenda. And so always be suspicious of anything that the atheist community produces. It is replete with errors. It's errors everywhere, but it's almost always the same errors, and I'm going to give you as much of that as I can. Error is inevitable with monism. And you need to know that when you see these things, that they are produced by monists. 
So don't panic, I guess is what I'm saying to you. I get a lot of letters and emails that are just absolutely panic-stricken. And it is completely unnecessary in my view. Monism is predicated on a fundamental error. And that is that humans and animals are not singular. They think humans and animals are singular. We're not. Now, I don't want to get into vertebrates and invertebrates and the breath and whether or not the exoskeleton transfers oxygen into the body. And we can do that another day. But uh, So I made a general statement. Human and animals, and it's correct, are living souls. They're not singular. They're twofold. They're dualistic. And you need to know that. And you need to know that the person producing the contrary to that has no it does not have that position, and that is what's driving them. Over the many years of my so-called career, I've had abuse heaped upon me for insisting that the winter solstice, which we're entering, right? We're losing four minutes a day. It's going to be, we're going to be lucky if we have any daylight here in a couple of weeks. It gets so short. There is no daylight in Barrow now. Oh, well, it's not Barrow. It's at Kralvik now, right? What? Well... It's been Barrow my whole life, but now it's it's Ukwalvik uh, or something. And uh, it, I went through Mount McKinley and Denali too, so I'm used to this stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. But anyway, uh, we're entering the period of darkness in Alaska. We really understand this is the winter solstice, and I have insisted my entire career again, so-called career, that the winter solstice is not a feast day of God. Christ did not establish the winter solstice. It is a time mark. It's how you tell time yearly, along with the equinox and the others, the, the solstices and the equinoxes. Those are words. Those are part, those are settings on a clock that is what God has established, what Christ has established. But the winter solstice, not a feast day, and Easter was not Passover. I have said it my whole time. And I understand occasionally, uh, Easter will almost coincide with Passover, but Easter is never Passover, our first fruits. Winter solstice is not a feast day. And I get told that I'm ruining Christmas. And I ruined the Christmas songs. Christmas, Christ sent, that is not, um, Christ was not sent on the winter solstice. And the point being that Christ chose to die on Passover. He is the Passover lamb. He's the one that designed it. That's who he is. That is why he has done it. Passover and the Passover lamb and Christ are impossible to to separate, and he chose to be born, in my view, on the feast day of trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, in all likelihood. I think that's the strongest view. And neither Easter or the winter solstice, again, are set aside by God for anything. Easter is has no relationship to Passover. Other Again, occasionally they come in the same week. Sometimes they're off by quite a bit of time, a couple of weeks. And therefore, Easter... That, whatever you wish to call it, whatever its origin is, and I have gone into the origin of the word Easter before and why it was established, they do not qualify. And I'm sorry, not really fake sorry about that. 
And the case can be made for the incarnation on the winter solstice, and that's really, I think, uh, uh, defensible. I think there's great value there. December 21st. But December 25th has no Christian or Jewish significance. It only has pagan significance. It is of pagan origin. That just happens to be the case. Now, the monistic atheists, they don't know that. They think Christ chose to be born on December 25th. They really do believe it. So they produce these incredible movies and presentations based on that. No one has told them that December 25th, no scholar, frankly, believes. I cannot find a biblical scholar that has published that believes that December 25th, not one that has any validity in the sense has an argument that can withstand anything. The December 25th is defended by the Catholics. Bless their hearts. But it, it, is, it will not prevail. So again, the monistic atheists, that's a redundancy, but they don't know that Christ would, did not choose December 25th. They think that he did. And where or where would they get such an idea? Who would possibly give them that concept? And the monistic atheists, again a redundancy, also think that three kings came to give gifts to Jesus Christ. It did not happen. It isn't true. It's not in the Bible. The court of Daniel came, the descendants of, of the astronomers that Daniel saved from execution. Nebuchadnezzar was going to would butcher all of them. Because he identified them, he figured out that they were frauds. And they were frauds. He was going to kill every one of them. And Daniel intervened, who Daniel, not being a fraud, was able to solve Nebuchadnezzar's image. And Daniel intervened, and all of those men were spared. And their progeny were taught what Daniel did for them and what Daniel knew. Their progeny, their descendancies, their descendants were taught the book of Daniel. And Daniel was also an expert in the book of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So you can imagine that these men gave up what they were doing and poured themselves into Scripture. They create the court of Daniel. And those are the men that came. And they came because they saw the primal light. And they knew what the primal light was. They knew that was a non-particle-based light. Somehow, though, someone has taught the monistic atheists, a redundancy, that the court of Daniel, hundreds and hundreds of learned biblical scholars were just three kings. Now, who, who would believe and teach that to the monists? Which is very funny. Something as indefensible as the three kings from the Orient has been taught to the monists. And the monists believe it. That's hilarious. I hope you appreciate the comedy here. Who would sell nativity scenes to the monists and everybody else? Who would sell stuff that presents that position? Anyway, the atheists have gone on and constructed an elaborate hoax empire. Movies and YouTubes and websites and books, all based on December 25th and Three Kings. 
mostly, as well as a couple other items, and I'll get to those in a minute, that they have equally misunderstood. For example, the crucifixion, three days, three nights, the resurrection. They don't understand the purpose of the virgin birth. They do not see Genesis 3. They do not see Romans 5. They do not see the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. They do not see that sin came through the man. They do not understand the continuity of germ cell plasm, August Wiseman. They do, uh, Gary Shine. I have to give him credit. He's a wonderful bio- biological scientist from, I believe, Canada. And he, uh, he has tremendously valuable material. But they don't understand any of that and they don't understand salvation, baptism, and ascension. They have no idea. And that's just to name the most prominent. What is immediately apparent is the total lack of any idea, understanding of Christian doctrine, doctrine that is within the atheists. And that would be inexplicable if it were inexplicable. And that might not make any sense to you. Let me rephrase it. Atheism is completely unable to com- comprehend the truths of Jesus Christ. They can't figure them out. They don't even know what they are. They'll never get it right. Zero. They will always have zero. Not one thing that is true of Christ do they know. Nil. And they do not know that they do not know. I call these the whys of Christ. Why. W-H-Y. Sounded like wise. W-I-S-E. The whys. Why Christ says things. Why he does things. Why the order. What is his plan. They don't have any idea what those are. So when they see one, they don't have any idea what it is. They don't know how to even trace it. All of that to say a cursory search of the Monist web pages will bring up mythicism. The proposals of mythic, mythicists. It's hard for me to say. And you're familiar with them whether you know it or not. I'll give you one example. There are many examples. Many, many of these out there. But the example that is the best known lately is uh, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. Most of you have read the book or saw the movies. Uh, and Dan Brown said this, so this is the example that's the best to, e- to use because it has the most continuity to our, our time. Nothing in Christianity is original. That is the thesis of The Da Vinci Code. That is the belief of Dan Brown. Nothing in Christianity is original. What's he, what does he mean by that? His, his premise is, in other words, that Jesus Christ never existed. He is non-historical. He's merely an appropriated, imaginative version of pagan religions. And the, and the mythicists insist, boy, that's going to be hard to say, mythicists Insist. Wow. Who wrote that? Put some Worcestershire in my diet soda if I'm going to do that. Mythicism insists that the pagan beliefs predate Christian beliefs. And all that the Bible teaches of Jesus can be traced to a pagan original. And they do not hesitate to give you their lists of supposed pagan deities that were crucified, resurrected, visited by three kings, born on December the 25th. Those two always make me laugh when I read them or see them. To a virgin mother, 
and thought to be a sun god. Let me repeat it. They will give you a list of pagan deities that they say were crucified, resurrected after three days and three nights, that were visited by three kings, born on December 25th, to a virgin mother, were thought to be the sun god, S-U-N, and presented themselves as the sun god. They will tell you that there are a, a, there are a plethora of pagan deities that all predate Christ, and that this is obvious that Christian teaching is just simply an appropriation of those original beliefs. And, of course, they intermingle modern notions of astrology, the zodiac constellations, and many other things. And, unfortunately, these performances are believed by thousands, and they are exactly that. They are performances. It's performance art. They know it isn't real, but they don't care. They're doing it in order to shake the Christian church. And sadly, Christians are affected by it. These performance art. This performance art. So let me see if I can ask a few basic questions for those of you out there on the Internet. And, and I know you're there, and I'm, I'm grateful you write me. Um, at the same time, it's discouraging, I have to say. This should have no effect on the church, but it has a lot. So again, let me see if I can be helpful. Do you, we, them, us, exist? That's where you start whenever you're confronting monism, and you have to know you're confronting monism. Do we, do I, do you have free will? That's the same question, different form. You start there, and you will unravel mythicism. The atheists say, no, we are predetermined beings with the illusion of existence and the delusion of free will. That's what they say. That is the foundation of atheism. It is the foundation of mythicism. It is the foundation of atheism. They say, let me repeat, no, we don't have free will. We are predetermined things, beings, with the illusion of existence and the delusion of free will. Physical things reducible to particles. So we need to know that this pagan origin concept is another ill-conceived attempt to apply non-existence to existence. They are trying to make those of us who understand we have existence think that we do not. That's the whole plan. And one more time, I've done this hundreds of times, but this is a good, this is, like I said, that the dark time of the year. It's the winter solstice. Here we go again. If I do not, if you do not, if we do not have any self-determinism, no will of any kind, as the mythicists say, then we are, I am, you are, an automation, a programmed device. We're not a living soul. A living soul is a spiritual person, not a physical device reducible to particles. And the mythicists say, the atheists say, that I do not think. I only think that I think. Absolutely what they say. Thanks for laughing. It's absolutely hysterically funny when you really talk to them. 
They also will say that I do not freely think or act. To freely think is to exist. Do you see? Understanding how free thinking and existence are intertwined, it becomes very essential to you. Existence, to be existence, must be eternal. A temporal consciousness is just a temporal consciousness. It's just a temporary condition condition awaiting extinguishment. Therefore, it is not existence. What is it instead? It is extinguishment. If it's going to be extinguished, then it isn't existence. It's just extinguishment. And them's the only two choices. Eternal existence or not eternal existence. Anything that is not eternal is not existence. It's just temporary pretend thinking. And the mythicists at least recognize these two positions And they teach and believe in, or say they believe in, I don't actually think they believe it. But they pretend to believe that in eventual nothingness. How does Christ treat us? How does Jesus Christ treat us? Because you can read what he what he thinks of us. And what he believes, this is God. How does God treat us? Does he treat us as beings with eternal existence? That's another redundancy. Let me say this real fast. People write me and tell me that I use redundancies a lot. And they do it thinking that I don't know that I use redundancies a lot. It's one of my tried and true teaching techniques. So I have to let them know that I do. I know it's a redundancy when it is one. Otherwise, they assault me. And I'm so fragile and sensitive and insecure that I have to fight back any way I can. <clears throat> Eternal existences, existence is saying the same thing twice, right? Jesus Christ treats us as if we are eternal, that he created as such He does not treat us as automatons with no freedom of thought awaiting annihilation. The Bible is as clear as a bell. Bells are not clear. I've tried to look through one. Clear as glass. My glass at my house is not clear. Paint all over it. Sheetrock mud. (laughs) We can't tell if it's winter. Anyway, Jesus Christ, God, does he treat us as if we are eternal beings or does he treat us as if we are robots? Can you see why the monistic atheists would want Jesus Christ to be removed from all cultures? Because he does not fulfill their concept of annihilation or extinguishment or extinguishing. He does the opposite. So to repeat this a little bit. Are we spirits, dualistic bodies that have minds or minds that have bodies? Where is the personhood in us? Is it in this body or is it in our mind, our spirit, our soul? God says definitively that our personhood is not in the body. It is in our soul. 
Why does Christ desire that we be saved? Ask that question. Why does Jesus Christ call for us to believe in him, which is a non-physical act? It is a mental process, a mind process, a spiritual process. What is the purpose of all these things on the atheist list? They don't know. The crucifixion is really the hypostatic union. It is the mystery of the incarnation. It is the mystery of godliness. Resurrection. How do I resurrect a dualistic entity? I have to find the body, completely repair the body, and then I have, and it could be crushed, it could be annihilated, it could be mutilated. That's what he does. It could be aged, it could be dust. He, he He wants that body resurrected and he puts the spirit back in it. Why does he do that? Why did he ascend? What is the virgin birth, the Shekinah glory, the primable light, the court of Daniel? What is all of that? Three days, three nights, sign of Jonah, feast days, baptism in the Jordan River. They take these things without any knowledge of their purpose and they put them into these constructed performances to try to fool us. And does it work? Oh, yes, it does. What is the purpose of the Bible? You'll never find an atheist, a mythicist, a a, a monist that knows. What is the purpose of every page of the Old Testament? They don't know. They'll never know. You can tell them. They still won't know. I've done it. I've showed them. They look at me like I'm completely insane. They have no ability. The purpose is to proclaim the true identity of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And the atheists do not know this, and neither do many Christians, hence the vulnerability of the Christian church. Okay, I'm going to go really fast because I have to get back to the topic. All of these pagan gods that they will raise to you, Mithras, Tammuz, Addis, Horus, Krishna, Marta, there's 20 of them doesn't matter. Whatever, get any of them, research them as you will. You will find no evidence of any kind that exists where any of them declared themselves resurrected. You can search all you want. So when you're told that this is the Tammuz or Addis or Krishna resurrected with three kings after three days and three nights and had a virgin mother. There is no evidence of that anywhere that is before Christ. None. Never has been. It's all completely made up. What do we have? We have information that does say weird things that you might be able to cobble together, but all of that at a minimum is a hundred years post Christ's crucifixion. That doesn't surprise me at all. There's very, very little information on these, these pagan deities. Hardly any. I mean, just literally very, the scraps. And the, the atheists present this, uh, Supposed evidence as if it predates Moses and Genesis. I'll give you an example. Mithras was said to be killed by a bull. He did not sacrifice himself. The bull killed him. He was not even human. He came from rocks. 
Now, I'm not familiar with a virgin rock. It's possible, I don't want to be disrespectful. But it, it does not appear that I can get some kind of continuity or somehow I can get from a rock to a virgin woman. Marduk did not resurrect Horus the Egyptian. They love Horus was said to be the son of Isis and Osiris. He did not die to forgive sins. The salvation element is not even there. They don't recognize the salvation element is the preeminent aspect of Christ. His glory really is a revelation of who he is. But, but the, they do not understand the forgiveness of sins. Horus had none of those attributes because they don't know that they're, they're valuable. If they ever could learn anything, they'd make a better, better trick, I guess, for lack of another word. But you can always spot it because the first thing you see is December 25th and the three kings. You go, okay. Somebody that, that has absolutely no knowledge of the Bible wrote this. Uh, back to Horus. There are several accounts of his death. None are crucifixion. And again, all the information that we have is 150 years from the crucifixion of Christ. And, and that's a generality, but it's very close. Krishna was the eighth son of his mother. Okay, I don't know your definition of virgin, but the eighth son probably doesn't qualify. Why would they say that he was of a virgin mother? He's killed by an arrow. Okay, that's a wooden device. But certainly not crucified by Romans, who were very good at crucifixion. Attis is not body resurrection. Zeus is his father. Attis is born in a river, abandoned by his mother, raised by a goat. Now you show me Christ there. Again, that information that I just gave you, post-Christ, 150 years. He's transformed into a tree. There's your crucifixion, I suppose. I could go on and on and on to every single one of them. They're all the same. All of this stuff about the pagan myths being a source of Christian doctrine results from a confirmation bias, a presuppositional presuppositional bias. They want it to be true. They know that it isn't. They process it in such a way that Christians will believe it without checking it. The atheists so want it to be true. They have taken materials that post-date the first century, which are significantly after the rise of Christianity, and, and at most 150 years post-Christ, and they, they, they know that. They know how little material exists on these deities. Very little material. And so you can see that the appropriation from, is not from the pagan to the Bible, it's from the Bible to the pagan. It's first century, it's second century. Again, let me repeat, very, very little exists of these beliefs, these religious symbols prior to Christ, none of which has been found contains anything that remotely looks like body resurrection or the mystery of godliness, three days, three nights, salvation, forgiveness of sin, crucifixion, court of Daniel, primable light, Christ did not call himself the sun god. Whenever they say, well, Christ is just copying these sun god deities, he never called himself the sun god. He explicitly said that he is the light that is before the sun. He's the primable light. They don't know that. 
They think he's, the Christians believe in a sun god. They haven't spent 20 minutes on this stuff. He did not, again, he called himself the light that was not created. He is the light that creates life. I am the light of life, he says, John 8. And the atheists don't know it. Oops. And they seize upon three kings in December 25th, the sun, God, and constellations. Overwhelmingly, constellations are modern thought. When you find yourself in these subjects confronting the accusation that December 25th is a foundation stone in Scripture and three kings is a constellation phenomena, and these are evidences of pagan influences that disprove all of the biblical counts, the sun god, well, please identify at least these three as completely ignorant, illiterate fallacies a convoluted sophistry. And they build all of this stuff off of those three. They think they have those three and they can add anything else they want and you will be fooled by it. And it's over and over again every year, year after year, as long as I can remember. And I am an old person. Look at me. Getting older by the minute. I look worse now than I did 40 minutes ago. Accelerated. And all of it concludes with the same thing. What is the conclusion, the ultimate conclusion of mythicism? It's hopelessness, it's purposeless despair, and the disillusion of personhood. That's what it is. Disguised, made up as archaeological science. Okay. Where was I? Sorry to do that to you again, but again, I have folks out there. I, I know it, and i got to take care of them. There are hundreds of them out there, and every year it's the same thing. So I know to do it because it's important. I don't worry about you guys. <sighs> okay, back to my diagram. Just know that this midpoint is an intermission, right? An interim. A uh, 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 pause, a parenthesis. That'd be better. Interim. Intermission. Whatever words you want. Just know that there's a pause that occurs here. So I have six trumpets. Boom, 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 boom. And then the seventh one, I have, before it goes off, there's a waiting period. A uh, uh, Recess. Something that I believe is of interest is to question this imprisoning of the occupants of the first and the second woes. Because here's the first and the second woes, right? The first woe, second woe, third woe. The abyss has created beings in it, right, that have been re-engineered somehow. Because you cannot have the position that these beings in the abyss that are the first woe and the second woe. You can't have the position that God made them that way because God does not make anything that is ungood. He's always good. He only does good. It may be difficult for you to figure out how it is good that what he is doing, but understand that it is always good. You just need to figure out how it is. 
But so I have these engineered, re-engineered, created beings who are held captive. Why are they captive? When were they captive? But the key is to them, to get them out, is given to a fallen star. Remember all of that? And these creatures are released. They are the fifth trumpet and the first woe. Then there's a second woe. That's the sixth trumpet. And then the third woe is the seventh trumpet. So I have these re-engineered creatures, and they are in prison. They're in the abyss. A key is given to the fallen star. Who is the fallen star? And these creatures are released, the fifth trumpet, the first woe. But they cannot kill. I hope you remember all of that. They cannot touch. They cannot affect the 144,000, the seal. And there is no death for five months. Abaddon is their king. And when you compare Revelation 13, Satan is calling the Antichrist out of the abyss. It says 13.1 that he stood, Satan stood on the seashore, if you will, and called out of, out of the abyss the Antichrist. Most will tell you that that is in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, Revelation 13 is not chronological. It's not sequential with Revelation 9. So I have to figure out, when did the Antichrist get called out of the abyss? Well, the truth is, is that the fifth trumpet, the first woe, is in the second quarter of the first half. I know that the Antichrist comes before the first quarter. He's revealed at the signing of the covenant with Israel. So Satan calls out the Antichrist, even though it's Revelation 13, he is before the first and the second woe, or the fifth and the sixth trumpet. So I have the Antichrist, if you make the, or the connection that the Antichrist is in fact Abaddon, then I have to kind of fit that all together, to repeat a little bit. I have two powerful evil entities in the abyss. The question becomes, are they two individuals? are one and the same. Notice that Satan didn't need a key to get the Antichrist out. He just calls him out. He arises out of the abyss at prior to the beginning of the tribulation because he signs the covenant which causes the which is what starts the tribulation. So he is out of the abyss prior to the tribulation. If the beings of the first woe, fifth trumpet, are under the authority of Abaddon, Abaddon is called the destroyer, and the destroyer is also the Antichrist, which many consider to be the case, well, now we need to reason that out. In any event, these two, if they're both in the abyss and they're separate, they know each other really well. They've been in the abyss together for quite a long time along with all these other things, thousands of years. If Abaddon is the Antichrist, he arrives in the abyss approximately 3,000 years after the locust-type being things, and he leaves them at least about two years, one and three-quarter years, before that woe even hits. Probably a little longer than that. 
Hopefully that makes sense. But just try to work your way through Abaddon and the Antichrist being in the abyss. The Antichrist called out before the tribulation begins. The fifth woe is in the second quarter or the second half of the first half of the tribulation. Okay, remember, as you know, there's five months of no death in the first woe, the fifth trumpet. The obvious question is, no death for who? No death for humanity. We know that not only can 144,000 not be affected, they can't be stung, but nobody can be killed. So there is no death. What's the obvious question? Can I kill the locust things? Are the locusts, abyss, the locust things subject to death, or are they exempted as well? So I've got two groups to deal with here. I've got the locust things and I've got humanity. I have the animals too. Who dies in that group? No one or anyone. How does the first woe, the fifth trumpet, conclude if no one can die, including the locust things? Do they just, does God just gather them up and re-put, put them back into the abyss after they've tormented people for five months? Option one. Is that what he does? Or, I now have a second woe coming, right? After five months, I have a second woe. It lasts 13 months. I have 18 months of woe woe. <laughs> I worked hard on that. I got two laughs. Three. Kind of a half grin. I got more for the half-grin joke than I did for the woe-woe joke. This comedy is really hard, and, and uh, you know, and it's brutal to stand up here and, and bomb. <laughs> it's worse than playing the, the, the banjo, but not by much. Again, how does the first woe-fifth trumpet end? Do the locusts return to the abyss, or does the second woe come while the first woe is still intact, if you understand what I'm saying? I still have the humans that can't die. I'm on the fourth month and the 29th day. No one can die on that day. Can the locusts die? Am I killing locust thingies? You know, if all I can do is be stung, but I can kill them, I have a tremendous advantage. Can I kill them? Can I, what can, what's going on? Can I beat them at least a little bit? I hit them with a bat? What can I do? What's going on in that time? Now it's four, four months have expired in 29 days. I'm about the next day I'm going to get the second woe, the sixth trumpet. Here comes another group of these things, but they don't come out of the abyss. They come out of the Euphrates, the pre-flood Euphrates, where they have been imprisoned, where they don't have a bad and one king over them. They have four kings, if you wish. Four angels. Get to that in a minute. So, did the Euphrates prisoners just get added to the first woe, fifth trumpet? In other words, both groups being contemporaneous. So, I have two woes now operating. I have the first woe. It's still going on. Then the second woe comes, but I have a change, don't I? If they are concurrent, then physical death is reestablished. And now mankind can be killed, certainly by the second woe group. What does the first group do if it's still there? 
If they cannot be killed, they're all still there. There is no evidence that God gathers them up. He acts as if they remain the way he describes that. Again, if they are concurrent, physical death is reestablished and one-third of mankind is killed. And then what does the the two-thirds do? Do you remember from the last week or the week before? Who can remember? The two-thirds that survive, what does the Bible say? They worship the demons. So our, And then I ask this question, are both of these released armies from the abyss and from the Euphrates, pre-flood Euphrates cavity, whatever it is, are both of these released armies wiped out? And I suggest to you, no death means no death. Death means death. They are able to kill one-third of humanity. I asked again, who is this one-third? Because I know two-thirds don't repent and they start worshiping the demons. And other idols they make that probably represent the demons that they just dealt with for 18 months. So you see, interestingly, that the demons somehow convert people to worship them by killing them, tormenting them, or not killing them. Two-thirds survive. I want to know how they survive. And are they fighting? Now I ask, are both of these thing armies wiped out? And did they know that what they were going to do was a futile endeavor before they consented to it, chose to attack? Obviously, these beings, however they came into their current status, however they became captive, however they became imprisoned, however they become released, are knowledgeable about truths that we humans have no concept of as now, as of now. For example, every one of these beings are proficient in one thing that is true. That the mythicists don't want you to know. That the atheists don't believe. There's not a single demon creature thing out there of any kind, angel of any kind, that does not know that there is a physical reality and a spiritual reality. They all know it. There's no idiots in the spiritual reality with regard to that piece of information. Every one of these beings that were released from the Euphrates and from the abyss are proficient in the realities of the spiritual and the physical. They have no concern. They have no fear of physical death. None. That's why they'll consent. That's why they'll attack. They don't fear it. They fully, exhaustively realize the subordination of the physical to the spiritual. The authority that the spiritual has over the physical. We're not that way. We may mouth it, but I'll tell you the overwhelming percentage of humanity believes the physical reality is superior to the physical reality. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. The overwhelming position in humanity is that the physical reality is the reality. The spiritual reality may or may not exist. No demon in the abyss or in the Euphrates confine has that position. I find it interesting that for five months, humanity is placed on equal footing from those from the abyss. Neither can be killed physically. God takes physical death off the table for humanity and introduces demons or 
creatures, things. They have a physical construct to them. I hate using that word. It's stolen from me now. I have to. I actually have a guy out there going, sorry, not really fake sorry. I'm suing him. I've been doing that for 30-some years, and he stole it from me. And do I get attribution? No. Do I get some monetization? No, I'm up here with my Worcestershire sauce. That's all I got. Anyway, made me mad. <laughs> anyway, where am I? Physical death has been removed for five months from humanity, humanity, and it's placed on equal footing. So I have two groups now, the angels and the humans. Neither one can die. All they can do is fight each other. Isn't that fascinating? That fascinates me. They can torment. Can we hit them with hammers? I believe we can. But there is no death. Remember the incredible words of God, Jesus Christ in Luke 12, 4 through 6. Do not fear those who can kill the body. That's nothing. Killing the body is nothing. I hate to bring that up to the mythicists. Killing the body is insignificant. Fear me, he says. Fear me, who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. I'm the one you fear. You don't fear the ones that can only kill the body. In other words, but then look at what he does. He takes killing the body off the table completely. Nobody can kill anybody's body. Nobody can die. No animal can die. Nothing. No death. No physical death. Five months. See, he's thought this through. Being omniscient God. Duh. Fear Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things. These are things. All they can do is kill the body. Don't fear them. So for five months, nothing. No one can kill the body. For the next 13 months, killing the physical is unbounded. It is almost nonstop. So you see the juxtaposition of the two. The things from the abyss under the command of Abaddon and the things from the Euphrates under the command of four angels. Are they cherubim, seraphim? Angels like Michael and Gabriel, what are they? Are killing and being killed. We have those, these entities killing and they're being killed and they're against one third of humanity. And both sides know the ultimate destiny of the releasing, of the released hordes. Everybody knows. They've gone five months with no physical death. Now they're in a physical death fight. Physical death is not as significant anymore as you might think. If you go through five months where nothing dies, what's your opinion of physical death? What has God done to you? An incredible act of mercy here, isn't it? He has changed your mind if your mind is willing to be changed. How many change their minds? Both sides, again, know the ultimate destiny of the released horrors. The, the lake of fire is created at Genesis 3. There's Genesis 3, and it awaits them. The, the things know it, and the humans know it. So why do the things seek to kill humans? What's motivating them? They know they're going to lose. They're outnumbered horribly. They do a pretty good job, but they still get completely eradicated. There isn't any left. All of them are gone. Humanity prevails because humanity can multiply itself and overwhelm the angelic horde that fell. How many in the angelic horde that fell? Whatever it was that capable of killing one-third of humanity. 
You start doing the math now. So why do they seek to kill humans? What value is there to them to kill human beings? And what about the remaining two-thirds? How many of them does Christ save? Because they're worshiping demons. Here comes the seventh trumpet. Here comes the second half of the tribulation. What's in the second half of the tribulation? The mark of the beast is in here. If you take the mark, how many of the two-thirds take the mark of the beast? Because that's once you do that, you have no longer, you are no longer salvageable. You have chosen to perish. So what about this remaining two-thirds? How many of them does Christ save? How many of them get to the 1335th day? What does it take to turn men from the worship of demonic forces? They're worshiping demons. How does Christ turn them? It takes, obviously, his voice. Finally. Finally now. It says finally. I want you to think about dreams and virtual reality devices. You can go buy, for Christmas, you can buy a virtual reality thingy. Put it on your face. It improves my demeanor tremendously. My countenance, if you will. So would a bag. But I have it on. And what is happening to me? I have two dogs. Every night they wait until we're asleep. One of them does, climbs on the bed, and then dreams and barks. And both legs, hind legs are going. You literally get trampled. He's amazing. He is convinced in that dream that he is on his way to catching something fantastic. We are convinced that he's insane. But we can't stop him, and it goes on literally every evening. And they all do it, all three of them, even the 16-year-old. She's still chasing. But I want you to think about that, that dreaming aspect, and and I want you to think about the virtual reality device. You see somebody with that device on, what do they do? They try to catch butterflies, right? They just try to drive. Their mind is convinced that the that the reality is the reality. Is it the reality? It's a device on their face, but they think it's a reality, just like you think your dreams. You're in the middle of a dream. You wake up. You're convinced that dream was real, isn't it? Was it real? It's in your mind. See, what does it say that I think a virtual device is real or that I'm out trying to catch baseballs that aren't even being hit to me, but I'm, I'm doing this, man, and I'm thinking that I've got a baseball in my glove. I feel it in my mind. I think it's real. It's not real. And I know it's not real. I have a thing on my face. So what does it say of the reality if I can make something that is not real appeal, appear to be physical reality. What does it say of physical reality? Is physical reality really real or sort of real? How much real is it? What are the implications? What's left? Spiritual reality. Next week, we continue with this thing here. Whatever it is.